I actually have two goals. The first is this, I want to prepare you for Christmas. You thought you were prepared. You're not. I want to prepare you for Christmas. You've got your tree, maybe, and uh, you've decorated the house, and you've filled the fridge and freezer. You've made travel plans, or you've arranged for family to visit with you, and you're all set, uh, fine, all good, fantastic. I want to prepare your hearts. I want us to be prepared for Christmas, uh, evaluating and appreciating its true significance and its true meaning. Now, related to that, my second goal is simply this. I want to give you something that truly matters. I want to give you something that truly matters. I had my nose in a book this past week, and in this book, the author wrote the following, did you ever hear about the goof on the roof? He's not talking about Santa. Did you ever hear about the goof on the roof? Get ready to file this one under things you cannot make up. His name was Ronald Stack. He was a diehard Baltimore Ravens fan who took his team so seriously that he resolved to live on the roof of a city bar until the team won a game. This was well before the team began winning Super Bowls. The stunt attracted local and then national attention. It also drew the ire of Stack's estranged wife, who made clear that she would rather he pay his child support than devote himself to a sports team. Yes, you read that right. Stack's devotion to his team eclipsed his devotion to his family. This factoid first makes us laugh. The nickname is funny. And then after we investigate a little bit, makes us upset at the suffering this man's wife and child faced. But it draws a third reaction. The more we think about it, there's a parable here for us. The goof on the roof sums up one of the chief temptations we face as creatures of a modern age. To take serious things unseriously, and unserious things seriously. We are not that different from Ronald Stack. We too are inclined to opt out of what truly matters and to buy into what is quickly fading. And so my goal, twofold, related, to make sure we are prepared to celebrate truly the significance of Christmas, and to make sure we are emphasizing and focused upon what truly matters. I want to impart to you something of immeasurable magnitude. I want to share with you something of incomparable substance, something of incomprehensible significance. I want to share with you something that is paradigm-shifting, heart-transforming, and life-changing. And we're going to get this something out of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Now, before we jump into this text, a great text, very apt, very fitting that we're celebrating Christmas because this is probably one of the big three. When you think of all of Scripture, and you think of those passages in which we have Beautiful pictures of the Lord Jesus. This is probably one of the big three. Colossians chapter 1, John 1, 
and Hebrews 1. Three glorious pictures of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. So very fitting that we're looking at it now as we celebrate Christmas. The context is important. You'll recall if you've been here the past couple of Sundays that we began all the way back in verse 3. And there Paul embarks on a long, verbose prayer. The prayer begins in verse 3, goes all the way through to the end of verse 20. In verses 3 through 8, he gives thanks. Thank you, God, for these believers, these Christians who live in this city of Colossae. I thank you for them because of the work you're doing in their lives, and that work is so evident. How is it evident? I see it in their faith, in their hope, and in their love. And so he gives thanks, verses 3 through 8. Having given thanks, verses 9 through 14, he then makes a request. He brings his petition before God. It's very simple, right there in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, Paul wants these Christians to increase daily, constantly, regularly in their ability to think and act and live biblically. Why? He tells us in verse 10 so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, fully pleasing to the Lord, fully pleasing to God. What does this kind of life look like? He mentions four marks, bearing fruit, middle of verse 10, knowing God, increasing in the knowledge of God, familiarity with Him. That's at the end of verse 10. Enduring affliction, verse 11, and giving thanks, verse 12. And so in the first section of this prayer, yes, he gives thanks for their faith, hope, and love. In the second section of this prayer, he makes his petition, verses 9 through 14, and he wraps up this petition by again focusing on this theme of thanksgiving. And what he has in view is very particular, very specific. He's thinking of Christ's work of redemption, how it is that we experience and we know we have the assurance of forgiveness of sins. As he contemplates Christ's work of redemption, he naturally begins to focus on whom? The Redeemer Himself. And with that, we shift into the third part of this prayer, verses 15 through 20. He's no longer giving thanks. He's no longer making His petition. Here, He is simply adoring His Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this wonderful expression of worship. Many scholars actually think that this was originally a hymn in the early church. Now, a slide is going to come up behind me. Nope, I'm a little off this morning. There it is. Thanks, Melissa. Just quickly, this is significant for understanding these verses. I hope that's clear to those of you in the back. I'm talking about verses 15 through 20, because these verses, a hymn, a hymn that actually contains two stanzas, and we can set these stanzas side by side, and when we do, it's very revealing. We learn that in the first stanza, that's verses 15 through 17, which we're going to focus on today, uh, Paul is talking primarily of creation, right? The cosmos, the universe, everything that is, everything that we see. And he's making a very simple point, very simple point in a very profound way, that Christ is, his Redeemer is, the supreme creator. Then we move into the second stanza of this hymn. Creation is no longer in view. The church is in view. It's the principal theme, the new creation. 
And here Paul demonstrates that Christ is the sufficient Redeemer. And as we get into these two sections, we notice that in each, there are four key statements, four central thoughts, and they parallel one another. And so in the first section, as he waxes eloquent concerning Christ, the supreme creator, he emphasizes his person. He is the image of the invisible God. In the second section, he emphasizes what? Again, his person. He is the head of the body, the church. In the first section, he emphasizes his relationship with creation. He is the firstborn of all creation. In the second stanza, he emphasizes what? His relationship with the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Back to the first section, the first stanza, he emphasizes that in him, that is in Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth. In the second stanza, what's what's he concerned with? Again, he's concerned with the person of Christ and emphasizing that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In the first section of the hymn, he emphasizes that Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In the second section, parallel, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. A beautiful hymn, beautiful portion of God's word. You can take that away, Melissa. Some of you are trying to jot that down. I'll bring it back up next week because we're not finished with that. Today we're just going to focus on verses 15 through 17. Creation. Christ is the supreme creator. A weighty truth. A glorious truth. Something that truly matters. And next Lord's Day, God willing, we'll look at verses 18 through 20. The church. Christ's relation to the church as the supreme redeemer. And so verse 15 of Colossians 1 reads, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Four phrases. They were up on the screen. They're in your sermon notes. I'm going to explain them now. Four key thoughts, uh, four principal truths concerning the Redeemer. As Paul, as he is still praying here in this section of his letter, as he worships, as he adores the risen Christ. Truth number one has to do with Christ's relation to God. Uh, What is the relationship between Christ and God? The statement, the phrase, right at the outset of verse 15 is this. He is the image of the invisible God. That raises a couple of obvious questions. Question number one is this. What does Paul mean by image? What is it? Why the convoluted language? Just state what you mean. Well, he is saying what he means. And these words have significance for his audience. An image, we hear that word and we think, we think in terms of, of something that reflects the likeness of its original. I think it's a pretty good definition, isn't it? An image is something that reflects the likeness of its original. So you got up this morning. You walked into the bathroom. You turned on the light to your horror. There you were, <laughs> staring at yourself. There, you know, just some of you do that. That's another sermon entirely. 
But there you were, staring at yourself in the mirror. Your image. An image reflecting what? The likeness of the original. You were the original. And there in the mirror was an image reflecting your likeness. And now when we get into the biblical usage of this word, we understand that an image can actually reflect the likeness of its original in two ways. A little tricky, but here we go. It can do so by way of representation. And so an image can reflect its, its, the likeness of its original by way of representation. So as you looked at yourself in the mirror, um, what you saw was what? A representation of yourself. Your image reflecting your likeness by way of representation. If you were to dig into your pocket right now, or ladies, your purse, and you pulled out a quarter, on one of the sides of that quarter, you would see what? An image of George Washington. I'm 99% sure. You have no idea either, but I'm pretty 99% sure it's George Washington. That is an image of George Washington. That image reflects the likeness of George Washington by way of representation. But an image can reflect the likeness of its original in a second way, by way of manifestation. When an image reflects the likeness of its original by way of manifestation, it means simply this, the original is in the image. Did you get the difference? As we looked at ourselves in the mirror this morning, we saw our image. The original was not in that reflection. Right? That's stating the obvious. The original was not in the image. You pull out that quarter and you see that image of George Washington. The original is not in that image. These reflect the likeness of their original by way of representation. But there are instances in which an image reflects the likeness of its original by way of manifestation because the original is in the image. That is Paul's point here. The Lord Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. How do we know that's what he means? Because in verse 19, just a little later, he's going to state it clearly, emphatically. uh, In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the image of the invisible God. Second thing we need to grapple with in that statement is that word invisible. Why? It seems redundant. Why throw it in there? Why doesn't Paul simply say, look, the Lord Jesus is the image of God? Why does, he, why does he feel necessary to insert that word, the image of the invisible God? Well, for starters, he's emphasizing the fact that we cannot see God. He is spirit, pure, indivisible spirit, and we cannot see him with the human eye. But he's emphasizing something else, probably more important, it's this. Not only can we not see God, but we cannot even comprehend God. He is invisible. We can sooner contain the sun in a small cup or the ocean in a small shell than God in our limited understanding. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. But praise God, because Christ is the image of the invisible God. It means simply this. 
If you want to know God, you look at Christ. And as we look at Christ, we see God's holiness. As we look at Christ, we see God's compassion. As we look at Christ, we see God's righteousness. As we look at Christ, we see God's loving kindness. And that is why Christ, the image of the invisible God, could declare and make it clear, uh, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He doesn't mean physically. Well, I haven't seen the Lord Jesus physically. That's not his point. Whoever has seen me, whoever has heard my words, whoever has seen my works, what are revealed to us in God's word, whoever sees me as I have revealed myself to be, now to us through the word of God, has this absolute assurance and certainty. They have seen the invisible God. So that's truth number one. Truth number two is this. It no longer has to do with Christ's relation to God, but Christ's relation to man. And so Paul states in the second part of verse 15, he, that is Christ, is the firstborn of all creation. And so the first statement had to do with his relation to God. He's the image of the invisible God. The second statement has to do with his relation to man. He is the firstborn of all creation. That term, firstborn, is a terrible stumbling block for some. It's a stumbling block because we hear that word, we think immediately in in one way. Uh, Most of us have families. Most of us have children. Most of us have multiple children. And so if you take stock of our children, and we think in terms of time, sequence, a birth order... We have a firstborn. We, we simply mean by that it is our oldest child. Our oldest child is our firstborn. And at times in Scripture, that word does mean that. Firstborn in terms of time. But on occasion, many occasions actually in Scripture, the term firstborn has reference not to time, but to position. Now here's a tricky question. Think before you answer. Who was Abraham's firstborn? Hmm. Who was Abraham's firstborn? In terms of time, the answer is Ishmael. In terms of position, the answer is Isaac. It was Isaac who was the firstborn by right. Isaac was the firstborn by position. That is how the word is intended here. Paul is emphasizing the fact that Christ is preeminent over creation. He does not say that Christ is the firstborn among creation. He says Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He is pointing to his preeminence. And in pointing to his preeminence, he is emphasizing his dignity and his authority. And now what Paul does in the third and fourth truths is he proves that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. You're following the thought flow, his logic. He's explained Christ's relation to God. He is the image of the invisible God. He has now affirmed Christ's relation to creation, that is to man. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now I'm going to prove it. And I'm going to prove it in two ways. The first of those ways brings us to the third truth. Christ's work of creation. Verse 16. For, 
So how do we know he's the firstborn of all creation? Here's how we know it. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Paul has a beautiful mind. When you take his mind coupled with the inspiration of the Spirit of God, and I guess it should be no surprise we get what we get. And his choice of words here and what he packs into this verse is striking. It's quite unbelievable. First of all, he explains what Christ created. He doesn't simply say, by him all things were created. No, he explains exactly what he means by all things. And he tells us three truths concerning these all things. First of all, he says something about their place. By him all things were created. Here's the place in heaven and on earth, everywhere. Then he says something about their nature, visible and invisible, everything. And then he says something about the dignity of these all things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What is he talking about? The angelic hosts, angels, archangels, seraphim, cherubim, all of them in their glory. He he, he is now probing, if you like, the heights of creation. The pinnacle of creation, the greatest beings created, these, this angelic host that worships before the throne of God. And his, emphasis, his point is simply this. Look, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Here's the first reason why he is the firstborn of all creation. It is because he created all things. I'm not going to leave it there. I want you to be perfectly clear on what I mean by all things. I think in terms of place, heaven and earth. I think in terms of everything, visible and invisible. And I think of the greatest part of creation going, the angelic host himself. Christ is above it all. Therefore, he is the firstborn of all creation. Preeminence. Dignity. Authority. But not only does he emphasize what God create, Christ created, He emphasizes, this is tremendous, how Christ created all things. And here we focus on just three little throwaway words, prepositions, at the start of verse 16, for by him, or actually to perhaps be more precise, in him. In him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created, preposition number two, through him. And preposition number three, For him. Why did he create? Why bother? Here we have the answer. How did he create? Here we have the answer. By him or in him, through him and for him. Let's imagine, by way of illustration, I've got a painting. I know nothing about paintings, but I've come into this painting somehow. And I want to know a few things about it. For starters, I want to know who made the thing. That's simple, right? I want to know who, who, who... Artist, man, woman, what was the name? What other things has he made? I want to know who produced the product. I'm holding this painting. Beautiful, beautiful rendering of a landscape or something. And I want to know who is responsible for this. Who is the efficient cause, the principal cause of this painting? Second thing I want to know is how did he paint it? 
because I'm a complete novice. I don't know if that's watercolor, acrylic, oil. Did he use a spatula? Did he use a brush? Did he use his fingers? I want to know how. What was the instrument he used to produce this painting? And I want to know why. Why did he do that? Because somebody contracted him and said, look, I want you to paint that because that's the view from my window and I'll pay you for it. So was it to make money? Uh, Did he do it simply because he wanted to, uh, to capture something he thought was beautiful and leave it for posterity? Or did he do it for his own pleasure? He simply enjoyed the act of painting and creating, so he made this rendering simply for his own use, his own enjoyment, his own pleasure. Why? We can ask the three same questions of the entire created order, the cosmos, the universe. Who? 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 Who is responsible for this? Who is the principal cause of the entire cosmos? We want to know how. How did he bring this about? How did he produce and create all that we see? And here's the question of all questions. I want to know why. Well, how many people in our day are asking that question, why? And our society fails miserably in answering the question of all questions. Why? Why is this thing here? Why are you here? What purpose, what function does this serve? Who, how, why? Paul packs it all into this verse. The answer, who, for by him, that is in him, all things were created. He is the sphere in which Christ is the sphere in which all things exist. And he is the agent by whom all things exist. He is the principal cause, the principal efficient of everything in creation. I want to know how. All things were created through him by his own design, according to his own wisdom, as an expression of his own power. And oh, I want to know why. Why does it all exist? What is the purpose of it all? It is for him. The answer to the question of all questions, why, is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one reason why this universe exists in its magnitude and enormity. There's only one reason why this world exists. There's only one reason why you exist. There's only one reason why there is such a thing as human history. It is for the eternal glory of the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the answer to every question, why? Christ, Christ alone. That is what Paul is emphasizing here. He is emphasizing what Christ created, emphasizing how he created it. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first cause and last end of everything, everywhere. Therefore, he is the firstborn of all creation. But he emphasizes a second point, a second reason why Christ is the firstborn of all creation. This brings us to the fourth truth. And what's in view no longer is Christ's work of creation, but Christ's work of conservation. Verse 17, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so we know his relation to God. He is the image of the invisible God. Okay, we've got his relation to man. He is the firstborn of all creation. 
We now understand point number one as to why he is the firstborn of all creation. It is because all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, principalities, powers, it doesn't matter. All things were created in him, through him, and for him. And we also know he's the firstborn of creation. Why? Because not only is he the creator of all things, he is the preserver of all things. But right off the bat, Paul inserts an interesting phrase right at the start of verse 17. And he is before all things. It's lost. We just lose it in the English translation. Let me try to explain this. Um, Looks, no, reads the book. You should be shaking your head. That makes no sense. Stephen just lost it up there. Reads the book. For that to make any sense, I need to put what at the start of it? Personal pronoun. He reads the book. She reads the book. Read the book. If it's not a command, I'm simply, it's simply a statement of, of what's happening. Again, we need a personal pronoun at the front of it. I read the book. You read the book. We read the book. They read the book. In English, you notice the ending of the verb doesn't change much. When it's he or she, what do we do? We add an S on the end of it. But other than that, pretty much we leave our verbs alone. Now, how many have studied Spanish or French or Italian? What was the greatest frustration as you embarked on studying one of those languages? It is the fact that it is a verb-based language. And the verb conjugates, that is, the ending of the verb changes for every person in every tense, every voice. That means that in those romance languages, Latin-based languages, you don't have to use the personal pronoun. You don't need to use he, she, we, they. Why? Because the end of the verb tells you the subject. Are you with me so far? I got about 12 people nodding. That's more than I expected. That's fantastic. It is exactly the same thing in the Greek. It's a conjugation-based language. And so the ending of the verb changes to tell you, to inform you of the subject. Therefore, in the Greek language, when the personal pronoun is used... What does that mean? It should grab your attention. That's not normal. It's used here. Why is it used? It's inserted in the Greek language for a couple of reasons. The reason here is for the sake of emphasis. And so if we wanted to make Paul's point, the the point that Paul is making here at verse 17, if we wanted to make it by way of speech, here's what I would say. And he is before all things. That's what he's writing. If we were to write it, we would probably have capital H, capital E, or maybe we would underline it, or we would put it in bold, or we would do all three. That's what Paul is doing here. And he is before all things. He is emphasizing his preeminence. And then what does he add to that? And in him, not only are all things created in him, And so there is his work of creation, but in him, here's his work of conservation, all things hold together. Now, I'm sure if we were to ask Mike, Mike Castle right here, third row from the front, Mike's a builder, and and Mike, as as he builds homes, and I don't mean this by way of disparaging, but he he doesn't do all the work, does he? He contracts to uh, carpenters, plumbers electricians, roofers, so forth and so on. And so, so, and so Mike might, might actually design the house, supervise and oversee the house, but much of the work is actually done by 
others. That is not the way when it comes to creation. Christ creates all things by his operative and directive power. Once Mike is finished building a house, what does he do? He walks away. He's done. That thing stands or falls on its own, but it no longer requires him. That is not the way it is when it comes to creation. By his directive and operative power, Christ created all things. And now, for all eternity, as it has ever been and as it will ever be, he maintains all things by his directive and operative power. Hear these words. The hand that made everything maintains everything. The power that produced all things out of nothing preserves all things from returning to nothing. There are three implications in there. I'm going to give them to you very quickly, very quickly. Stick to my notes. Here they are. Number one, it means that the foundation upon which all things stand is Christ. The foundation upon which all things stand is Christ. He hangs the earth on nothing. The law of gravity. And all of these other laws, which, boy, they're, they're beyond me as to why the earth stays where it is. Don't, I, I don't even know where to begin to explain that. Or planets moving this way or that way in their orbit. And the galaxy, the galaxy does end. What's beyond the galaxy? And how does the galaxy actually stay where it is then? You know, the Greeks, the Romans in their mythology, I mean, they were crude. But they did have a glimmering of understanding when they spoke of that individual, Atlas. What did Atlas do? He held up the earth. It's crude, very crude in their understanding, but there is a glimmer of truth there. Christ is the foundation upon which everything stands. Second implication is this. Christ is the fountain from which all things derive their motion. Why does my hand move? Why do my lips move? Why did you just look up? Why are those fans moving? Why does the wind blow? Why did the sun come up this morning? Christ is the fountain from which all things derive their motion. If he were to suspend, that is, withdraw his influence, the fire right here, these candles, would not burn. The eye would not see. The sun would not shine. The wind would not blow, the hand would not move, the bird would not fly, the grass would not grow. Do you view creation like that? All motion, all activity is the direct result. It has a cause. It is the direct result of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He created all things, and in him all things hold together. The third implication is this. Christ is the bond, the glue, by which all things hold together. Why doesn't the cosmos burst apart? It is because Christ alone is the cohesion which holds the universe intact. It is Christ's will that makes a thing to be. Hear this. 
It's, it's, it's heady, and it will stump us a little bit. But hear this. It is Christ's will that makes a thing to be. And it is Christ's will that makes that thing continue to be. His will alone. He preserves all things from running into confusion or reverting back into nothing. That is his work of conservation. That is his work of creation. And it is in light of these two works that he, that is he who is the image of the invisible God, is the firstborn of all creation. I told you I wanted to give you something weighty this morning. Something immeasurable in magnitude, incomparable in substance, and incomprehensible in significance. We're gearing up for Christmas. Oh, folks, there's a lot more going on at Christmas than meets the eye. There are reasons for celebrating the incarnation, the profundity of which we can never probe, we can never fathom, we can never measure. Let me give you three things in light of this text, three things that truly matter this Christmas season. Here's the first, the wonder of his birth. That's obvious, isn't it? No-brainer. The wonder of his birth, that this God became a man like you and me, that the supreme creator became a creature, that he who made all things out of nothing was born of a woman, that he whom the heavens cannot contain was contained in the narrow womb of a woman. I think we have something to celebrate. I think we have something to get excited about. I think we have cause to just sit in silence and awe and wonder at the magnitude of the Incarnation. The second thing that truly matters at Christmas is this, the wonder of his death. This God who became man came came close, really close, by assuming our humanity. Came so close to experience hunger, right? Thirst, weariness, danger, rejection. Came so close to us to taste death. And here, here's here's the wonder of wonders, profundity. It is by virtue of his deity, who Christ is, that his suffering upon Calvary's cross is of such magnitude. It is because of who he is, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, He who is the image of the invisible God. He in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It is because of who he is that the value of his suffering upon Calvary's cross is infinite. Do you know what that means? It means it can wipe away all my sins, brother. And it can wipe away yours too. It means it can cleanse me from every stain, sister, and it can cleanse you from every stain too. The judgment that awaits those who reject the Lord Jesus is hell. And hell is eternal. Why? 
Because sin is of an infinite value because it is committed against a God who is infinite. But Christ upon Calvary's cross in three hours as that darkness descended, suffered the equivalent of an eternity in hell. Why? Because of the magnitude of his suffering and the value intrinsic in his suffering because of who he was. Oh, the assurance that brings me that I can get on my knees before this God and I can say I'm sorry and I can confess my sin. I can repent of my sin and I can look to the Lord Jesus and I can behold the Savior of sinners and have this assurance that his sacrifice was of such infinite value, sufficient to wipe away all my sin. Third thing that truly matters this Christmas is as follows. The wonder of his love. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he, this God of whom we've been speaking this morning, that he laid down his life for us. This is how we know love. That he laid down his life for us. Understand this, at Calvary's cross, the Son of God was not trying to convince the Father to love us. Did you get that? At Calvary's cross, the Son of God was not trying to convince God, his Father, to love us. He was magnifying, displaying, revealing God's love for us. As he poured out his life. Jonathan Edwards wrote the following. There are two things. Two things that render Christ's love wonderful. Are you ready? Number one, that he was willing to endure suffering that was so great. That's the first reason. That he was willing to endure suffering so great. And here's the second reason. reason, That he was willing to endure such great suffering to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. Oh, three truly significant truths. Things which truly matter. The wonder of his birth. The wonder of his death. And the wonder of his love. Friend, does it move you to think of what this God has done for you? The tinsel is fine. I've got no problem with it. The tree with the star on top, no problem with it. Turkey, ham, whatever's on course for Wednesday, fantastic. Gifts, family get-togethers, games, all the gusto. Go for it. But understand what's really going on. Please, please, please understand the magnitude and the significance of the incarnation. And seek to love Him dearly. Seek to love Him entirely. Love Him sincerely. Love Him above all. And love him more than all. Our Father, we do join with one voice to praise the name of the Lord Jesus this day. We thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. And that great love displayed magnificently upon Calvary's cross. We pray that our minds might be delighted with these glorious truths. We pray that our hearts might be overwhelmed, our affections quickened and warmed by these great truths that we have pondered this day. And we ask, as always, that our lives might be brought into conformity with them. We ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom. We ask it for the glory of your name. 
In the matchless name of the Lord Jesus, we do pray. Amen.